Chapter 8, Part 1 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois-Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 8, Part 1 1189-1216 Richard Coeur de Lyon, John Lackland, Magna Carta The first act of the new king was to deliver from her prison his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, to whom he had always been tenderly attached. While she was presiding over the preparations for the crowning of her son, dispensing amnesties, and calling all free men to swear allegiance to him, Richard arrested Stephen of Tours, Seneschal of Anjou, and treasurer to Henry II, threw him into prison, and did not restore him to liberty until he had been put in possession by him, not only of the treasures of the dead king, but of all the personal property of the treasurer as well. On arriving in England, Richard also went in great haste to Winchester, in order to secure the riches which had been amassed there by his father. The Jews were uneasy at seeing the new sovereign display so much avidity. They had been accustomed to suffer for any want of money on the part of kings, and Philip Augustus had just set the example of confiscation by driving them away from his kingdom on his accession, 1180, in order to seize their property. Richard contented himself with forbidding them to enter Westminster Abbey, but some wealthy Jews, hoping to secure the favour of the new king by rich presents, ventured to present themselves among the vassals who brought their offerings to Richard. The gifts were accepted, but, after the coronation ceremony, when Richard, having taken the crown from the altar, in token that he held it from God alone, had deposited it in the hands of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who placed it upon Richard's head, a noise was heard proceeding from the gates of the churchyard. A Jew who attempted to enter was pushed back. On this disturbance being made, the other Jews were driven away, and then the popular vengeance was wreaked upon their houses, which were set afire. A great number of Jews were killed. The fury spread throughout the whole of the country. At York, the unhappy Jews retired into the citadel, where the governor allowed them to take refuge, but he went out one day, and the Jews, fearful of treason, refused to let him re-enter. The fortress was besieged, and when the Jews found themselves about to be taken, they set light to an immense wood-pile, and threw themselves upon it with all their riches, after having themselves slain their wives and children. Richard forbade this persecution of the Jews, but did not cause anybody to be punished, and this shedding of the Jews' blood, says the old chronicler, although against the wish of the king, seemed to foretell that Coeur de Lyon would be a plague to the Saviour's enemies. Richard appeared for the time being to have become imbued with the commercial spirit of these much-despised Israelites. He turned everything into money, selling the royal domains which his father had been at such pains to reconstitute, bartering away towns, castles, 
and even, sometimes, property which did not belong to him. I would sell London if I could find a buyer, he said. The most important offices in the kingdom were disposed of by auction like the domains. Hugh Pudsey, Bishop of Durham, bought the county of Northumberland and the title of Chief Justicia. The bishoprics and the abbeys were offered to the highest bidder. The King of Scotland was released of the tribute imposed upon him and his people during his captivity for the sum of 20,000 marks of silver. The crusade which Richard was projecting, and which occupied his whole attention, required considerable sums of money, and the king was not very scrupulous as to the means he adopted for obtaining the money which he wanted. Prince John, his brother, had just received some very large gifts in Normandy and in England, but he was not nominated regent of the kingdom during Richard's absence. The power was divided between Bishop Pudsey and William Longchamp, Bishop of Ely and Chancellor of England. Many duties were entrusted to Queen Eleanor, and, towards the end of the year 1189, Richard proceeded to Normandy. He had promised to start on the crusade at Easter in 1190. The emissaries of King Philip Augustus met him at Rouen and took oath upon the soul of the king their master to a treaty of alliance, both offensive and defensive, between the two sovereigns. The King of France undertaking to respect and defend the rights of the King of England as he would his good city of Paris, while the English delegates swore on the soul of the King of England to perform the same services for King Philip as he would for his good city of Rouen. The kings of England were still, before all, dukes of Normandy. The Queen of France, Isabella of Hainault, had just died, and the departure for the crusade was postponed until midsummer. The two kings at length met on the plains of Vézelay, accompanied, it is said, by a hundred thousand crusaders. They marched across the country together as far as Lyon, and then separated, after having made an appointment to meet at Messina. Philip marched towards Genoa, where he expected to find those of his vessels which were destined for foreign service. Richard was going to Marseille. His fleet was to come and meet him there. England was no longer at the mercy of Genoese or Venetian merchants, being in possession of a considerable number of vessels. But the English ships were delayed. They experienced some mishaps in the Bay of Biscay. Some had sought shelter in Portugal. Richard became impatient, and hiring some mercantile barks, he set out with a portion of his forces, in order to arrive sooner at Messina to meet the King of France. But the English ships sailed faster than the Marseille barks. When the King arrived in Sicily, his fleet had preceded him. The Kingdom of Sicily had previously lost its sovereign, William the Good, brother-in-law to King Richard, and his cousin Tancred, Count of Lecce, had been elected King in his stead. The Dowager Queen, Joanna, Richard's sister, claimed her jointure, which Tancred held unjustly, as she said. Scarcely had Richard set foot in Sicily when, without waiting for the negotiations to be made, he took possession of the castle and of the town of Bagnara, and established his sister there, who had arrived before him. Then, returning to Messina, 
he drove the monks from a convent which suited his purposes and converted it into a barracks. So many outrages roused the people who shut the gates against Richard's troops. A conference was being held in the camp of Philip Augustus for adjusting this difference when a fresh quarrel broke out between the Sicilians and the English troops. Richard left the royal tent in great haste, assembled his men, and running helter-skelter among the citizens, he entered Messina and planted his banner upon the ramparts. Philip Augustus at once demanded that his own banner should also be planted there. But Richard consented to give up the town into the hands of the Knights Templars, pending the decision respecting his sister's pretensions, and King Tancred hastened the negotiations, being anxious to rid himself of so turbulent and formidable a guest. Queen Joanna obtained a large sum of money, and King Richard received his share of it, which he scattered broadcast amongst the Crusaders, thus finding favour with the French as well as the English, the Normans, and the Aquitanians. Philip Augustus, courageous and bold as he was when necessary, did not possess in as great a degree as the King of England the brilliant qualities which then constituted a true knight. He was more prudent and cunning than Richard. Perhaps he was even given to dissimulation, for Tancred accused him before the King of England of having endeavoured to dissuade him from negotiating with Richard, and when the latter came and complained angrily to Philip, a quarrel was about to break out between the two brothers-in-arms, who had sworn to help each other in the holy enterprise. Richard thereby gained permission, accorded to him by the King of France, to marry whoever he chose instead of the Princess Alice, the sister of Philip Augustus. It was high time for Richard to disengage himself from previous contracts, for Queen Eleanor was to bring back to her son the Princess Berengaria, for whom she had been to Navarre. They were only waiting until the departure of Philip to celebrate the marriage. Bad weather had prolonged the stay of the King of France at Messina until Lent, and Richard's marriage with Berengaria had not yet been solemnised when Philip left Sicily on the 30th of March, 1191, upon his ship, Franck le Maire, at the head of more than 200 vessels. The Queen of Sicily took the young princess away with her. The weather was unfavourable and the fleet was dispersed. When King Richard, suffering from seasickness, landed at Rhodes, he was almost alone, and he learned that the vessel, the Lion, with the princesses on board, had been driven ashore on the coast of Cyprus. The governor of the island, or, as he called himself, the Emperor Isaac Comnemnus, had not allowed them to disembark. The sailors who had ventured to land had even been ill-treated. Much less provocation would have sufficed to arouse the anger and vengeance of Coeur de Lyon. He immediately left Rhodes, sailed to Cyprus, took possession of the island and made prisoners of the emperor and his daughter, gave the latter to Berengaria for an attendant and placed Isaac Comemnus in silver chains, which the latter wore until his death. Richard was married in the church of Limassol on the day after Easter, in order to set out immediately for Acre, the siege of which town had already commenced, 
in spite of the plague which was decimating the army. The prowess of King Richard soon attracted towards him the eyes of the Crusaders and of the Mussulmans themselves. Stricken with the fever, he would cause himself to be carried upon a litter to the ramparts and would there direct the movements of the troops. He distributed among the knights the money taken at Cyprus. The jealousy of King Philip gained ground day by day. Accustomed to consider himself superior to the King of England, who was his vassal, Philip was annoyed at seeing his own authority lessened in consequence of the prodigious valour of Richard, the King, as he was called everywhere in the East, in defiance of the rights of the King of France. The French knights and their adherents on the one hand, the English knights and their allies on the other, had vainly endeavoured to take the town by storm. Saladin, the Sultan of the Arabs, kept aloof, watching for an opportunity to relieve Acre, but the Christian army completely surrounded it. As the eyeball the eye, say the Oriental historians, so completely, in fact, that at the moment when the chiefs of the Christian army, temporarily reconciled, were preparing to attack the town in unison, the Mussulman garrison surrendered, their lives being spared, on the 12th of July, 1191, and Saladin retired into the interior of the country. Philip and Richard immediately entered Acre at the head of their armies and planted their banners upon the ramparts. The King of England had taken possession of the Sultan's palace without troubling himself to find a residence for Philip, and when he learnt that the Archduke of Austria, Leopold, had set up his banner at the side of the Standard of England, he went and tore it down with his own hands and threw it into the trenches, indignantly asking how a duke could have any pretensions to the honours exclusively reserved for kings. Richard was destined to pay dearly for these haughty proceedings. Scarcely had the Crusaders entered Acre when King Philip announced his intention of returning to Europe. In vain was he urged to persevere in the holy enterprise. In vain his emissaries, who were entrusted to announce this news to King Richard, were so ashamed of it that they wept and said nothing. Philip insisted on returning to France, which country he would have been wise not to have left in the preceding year. Ten thousand French crusaders remained in the east, under the command of the Duke of Burgundy. The King of France solemnly swore not to make any attempt upon Richard's dominions, and set sail on the 31st of July, leaving the Christian army a prey to the dissensions to which the succession to the throne of the still unconquered city of Jerusalem gave rise. Sybil, granddaughter of Godfrey of Bouillon, had just died, and her husband, Hugh of Lusignan, was one of the two pretenders to the title of King of Jerusalem, the other being Conrad of Montferrat, husband of Isabella, sister of Sybil. The King of France espoused the cause of Conrad, and Richard supported Lusignan. It was in the midst of these differences that the Crusaders, under the command of the King of England, commenced a march across the desert of Mount Carmel. Exhausted by the heat, they were also harassed by the Arab horsemen 
who were more embittered than ever against the Christians, for the term fixed for the exchange of prisoners, having gone by without Saladin's having sent back those in his possession, the King of England had caused all the Mussulman prisoners to be led out of the camp and to be slaughtered before the Sultan's eyes. The soldiers even went as far as searching the entrails of their victims for any gold or precious stones which they might have swallowed. A great battle was fought at Arsuf on the 7th of September. King Richard performed prodigies of valour and opened up a road to Jaffa. Saladin was at Ascalon when the Crusaders, who had arrived at Bethany, were compelled to give up their intention of laying siege to Jerusalem on account of the bad weather. The Sultan at once abandoned Ascalon, dismantling the ramparts and thus making the way clear for Richard. The latter hastened to repair the fortifications. In order to encourage the soldiers, he himself carried stones to the workers and urged the Archduke Leopold to do likewise. "'I am not the son of a mason,' replied the Austrian, whereupon Richard, in a fit of passion, struck him in the face. Leopold at once left the army and set out to return to his states, followed by his soldiers.' In vain was Ascalon fortified. In vain did Richard agree to confer the crown of Jerusalem upon Conrad of Montferrat in the hope of re-establishing a mutual understanding in order to be able to march against Jerusalem. That prince was almost immediately murdered by two emissaries of the Old Man of the Mountain, a mysterious sovereign whose devotees, intoxicated by the fumes of hashish, blindly obeyed his orders. This crime was attributed to the King of England, who afterwards quarrelled with the Duke of Burgundy, depriving himself of the support of the French as he had previously deprived himself of that of the Austrians. They had again advanced as far as Bethany, and a band of crusaders had ascended a mountain overlooking Jerusalem. King Richard was asked to come and see the holy city in the distance, no, said he, covering his face with his cloak. Those who are not worthy of conquering Jerusalem should not look at it. The crusaders retraced their steps as far as Acre. On arriving at that town, Richard suddenly learnt that Saladin was besieging Jaffa. He embarked at once and sailed to the rescue. The crescent already shone upon the walls, but a priest who had cast himself into the water in front of the royal vessel, told Richard that he could yet save the garrison, although the town was already in the hands of the enemy. The ship had not yet reached the landing stage, and already the king was in the water, which reached his shoulders, and was uttering the war cry, St. George! The infidels, who were busy plundering the city, took fright, and three thousand men fled, pursued by four or five knights of the cross. The little corps of Christians entrenched themselves behind planks of wood and tubs. Ten tents held the whole of the army. Day had scarcely dawned when a soldier flew to Richard's bedside. Oh, King, we are dead men, he cried. The enemy is upon us. The King sprang up from his bed, scarcely allowing himself time to buckle on his armour and omitting his helmet and shield. Silence! 
he said to the bearer of the bad news, or I will kill you. Seventeen knights had gathered round Coeur de Lyon, kneeling on the ground and holding their lances. In their midst were some archers, accompanied by attendants, who were recharging their arquebuses. The king was standing in the midst. The Saracens endeavoured in vain to overawe this heroic little band. Not one of them stirred. At length, under a shower of arrows, the knights sprang on their horses and swept the plain before them. They entered Jaffa towards evening and drove the Mussulmans from it. From the time of daybreak, Richard had not ceased for a moment to deal out his blows, and the skin of his hand adhered to the handle of his battle-axe. The remembrance of this day had not faded when, more than fifty years later, St. Louis led the French troops to the crusade. Joinville heard the Saracen mothers scolding their children and threatening them with Malakric, a name which the Mussulmans gave to King Richard. Such severe fatigue under the burning sun had affected the health of Coeur de Lyon. Disquieting news came from his dominions. He concluded a truce with Saladin, giving up Ascalon to him, but keeping Jaffa, Tyre, and the fortresses along the coast, and promising to refrain from any hostilities during a period of three years, three months, three weeks, three days, and three hours. Then I will come back, said Richard, with double the number of men that I now possess, and will reconquer Jerusalem. Saladin smiled, acknowledging, however, that if the holy city was to fall into the hands of the Christians, no one was more worthy of conquering it than Malakric. The two adversaries had conceived for each other a feeling of chivalrous admiration and esteem, which is the theme of Sir Walter Scott's novel, The Talisman. Numerous presents had been exchanged by them during the war, and when Richard was suffering from fever and was perishing with thirst, he received each day fruits and cooling drinks, which were sent to him by the Sultan. It was on the 9th of October, 1192, that Richard Coeur de Lyon left Palestine. Standing upon the poop of his ship, he was surveying the shore, then fading from sight. "'Oh, holy land!' cried he. "'I leave you to God as well as your people. "'May he help me to come back to your assistance.' The English ships were sailing together when a storm arose and dispersed them. The one which carried the two queens arrived in Sicily. But King Richard was not with them, and no one knew what had become of him. Driven at first towards the island of Corfu, he had hired three small vessels which had taken him to Zara, whence he hoped to reach his nephew, Otho of Saxony, son of his sister Matilda. He found himself surrounded by enemies, and threatened on all sides. He knew that King Philip had entered into a league with John Lackland in order to deprive him of his kingdom. The Emperor Henry had laid claim to the throne of Sicily and had not forgiven Richard for his alliance with Tancred. Leopold of Austria had not abandoned all hope of revenge, and everywhere the relations of Conrad of Montferrat were accusing the King of England of having been the cause of the death of their ally. End of chapter 8, part 1